You turn tonight to Acts 23. As we move on our journey here through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, more importantly, the work of the Holy Spirit in the first century church. And now this time of Paul's defense, as we began last week in Acts 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's now being brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the religious court, in essence, of the Jewish people. So you have the ruling Roman government, which is ruling the land of Palestine at the time of Paul's arrest. You have those who are involved in the Roman government, but you also have the Jewish religious leadership. A group of 72 men who gather in the Hall of Hewn Stones, as it was known to the Jewish people. The southern end of the Temple Mount, Herod's Temple, slightly off-center to the north, and this very long colonnaded building that was almost on the edge of the southern wall overlooking the Hinnom Valley on the south side of the Temple Mount. And gathered there was a court that was convened that had a president... And that president oversaw these 71 men who served. And they decided things as they pertained to the law of Israel. And so Paul has now been brought before that group of men. And he's making his case, in essence, for the charges that have been brought against him, which is he's a heretic. And so Paul is now going to continue that defense. And he's going to begin to explain exactly what he means as he's brought before the Jewish high council. And he's going to be opposed by people whom you would think would have a little bit of sensitivity towards his plight. But we can see how the Holy Spirit working in Paul's life enables him in a very difficult situation to say the right things at the right time. And so as we dig in tonight, in the 23rd chapter in the book of Acts, let's pray together and ask God to bless the time that we have in his word. Father, we have again drawn together uh, here as is our custom, Lord, on the, on the eve of the day that we celebrate your coming, Lord, that first time into Jerusalem to die. And Lord, as we begin Passion Week and we now look at this great apostle Paul's life, and how he met every single thing that was thrown against him with great strength because of the power that worked within him to will and to do your good pleasure. The power of the Spirit. You, Father God, overlooking from heaven, taking care of every need of his life. We pray that you bless us as we read and study. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen take you back one verse, verse 30 in chapter 22. And the next day, the commander freed Paul from his chains and ordered that the leading priests be brought into session with the Jewish high council. And so this is referring to the Sanhedrin. Uh, They're going to meet now in Paul's case. And he had Paul brought before them to find out what the trouble was all about. And so he now is standing before this court, a religious court, And as he does so, there's a couple of groups that were involved. They were represented roughly equally. On one hand, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, were, if you were, the legalists with regard to the 
strict interpretation of God's law. And then you had the Sadducees who were more libertine. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they're going to debate an issue uh, that is a religious one with the Apostle Paul. And Paul is going to address them now. And it says in verse 1 of Acts 23, And then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren... So he addresses them. Again, he's using kindness, as we saw last time. The Apostle Paul was was meticulous in the way he used language to draw people in, to give God an opportunity to speak through him. Uh, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm resting my case on what my conscience says to me uh, about the way I've lived my life before God. And as you look at that sentence, can you say the same thing? It should pop into your mind. If you were to be questioned about something that you have said, something you've done, the way you've lived your life, could you in good conscience say that I have done what God has asked me to do? That you've lived your life in accordance to his word. Paul was able to say that. He had not compromised so far as he had known in any way, shape, or form anything that God had ever asked him to do. And so with great confidence, he stands in a very hostile environment before these people. And he says, and then the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Now, you know, you would think when you speak the truth, you're not going to get punched in the face. But sometimes you get punched in the face for speaking the truth. And that is what is happening to the Apostle Paul. He actually uh, is now deemed to be a blasphemer. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, that is probably not a way you want to address the high priest when you're standing in the Sanhedrin, but that is what the Apostle Paul said. It's exactly the same thing that Jesus said, by the way. And in fact, he called that same group of men a, a different, uh, different man personally, but the same group, the high priest then, uh, Caiaphas, and the group gathered with him, called them a whitewashed sepulcher, the same basic inference. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? In other words, Paul had a right to express his viewpoint. And so as he expresses that viewpoint, he's not expecting to be struck because that is exactly what he's entitled to be able to do, according to the Hebrew law and according to Roman law. And so he's speaking out in a a way, and uh, Paul is looking at them, and there's a special word that's used only once in the entire New Testament. It's used here. And it means to gaze upon. It's actually the Greek word from which we get our word attention. So Paul is looking at them intentionally trying to get their attention. In other words, he's staring them down eye to eye. He's not afraid of what they can do. He's not afraid of what they can say. He has utter confidence that God has this under control, even though it's not going all that well at this point in time. And so what we see here is that no amount of human opposition is really ever going to thwart God's plans. Now, it may delay God's plans, but God is going to do what God sets out to do. And sometimes we as human beings kind of get in the middle of what God's doing, and we stir up the pot a little bit, and that's happening here to the Apostle Paul, because what God has told Paul is that eventually... He is going to make it to Rome, and through Rome, the gospel is going to go forth to all the world. And he sits now, uh, in essence, in judgment for being used of God. And so he fulfills that duty. And, and he, he calls out the wrongs as he sees them. 
This is an important thing for us to remember as, as we're sharing with people. When we tell people the truth, sometimes they don't understand immediately the truth because spiritual truth, at least, cannot be known by the carnal mind. It's the spiritual mind that understands spiritual truth. And sometimes you're going to be falsely accused for the things that you say. You've got to stay the course and speak the truth in a way that someone can receive it. And when you do that, sometimes you're going to have to address wrongs. One of the things that we pastors end up doing inevitably is having to pull out our Bibles and someone comes in and there's a situation that exists in their life and you have to sit down with them and this is what the Bible says and they may not like that. That may be utterly offensive to them. But you have to stand on what the Word says and as you stand on what the Word says, you have to address the wrongs in their life based on what the Word says. And so Paul does that as he's being, in essence, tried here in this religious court. Ananias actually became the high priest in about AD 48. Uh, He took over after two other previous high priests. One of them was Caiaphas, the very same high priest uh, that ultimately was responsible for the condemnation of Jesus. But Paul is basically saying to this guy, look, I know what my Bible says. This is an important thing for us today. Because we know what God's word says and we can use it effectively when we're talking to people. But if you don't know what it says, then you can't use it effectively when you're talking to people. And so Paul, knowing that Leviticus 19, uh, there in verse 15, says, You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, deferred to the great, and with justice you shall judge your neighbor. He's saying to the high priest, Look, I know what God's word says. You just struck me for no reason the word you claim to defend is absolutely contrary to what you just did. When you can take people back to the word, you, you can get an inroad that you won't otherwise have. And so make sure that you speak forth the word as Paul is speaking it forth here. You know, no, no amount of calling Ananias a hypocrite uh, was going to really get very far. And so Paul has to say, look, you know, this is, this is what you are. But the bottom line is, is Paul wanted to get to his heart. And so he goes on in verse 4, and notice what he says. And those who stood by uh, said, do you revile God's high priest? In other words, they're coming to the high priest's defense. And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So again, he defers to the word. And at the same time, he's saying, look, let me get you thinking here a little bit. Very important tactic for you to use when you're talking to people who claim to be speaking for God, but what they do is contrary to the word of God. Paul basically says, look, by the way this guy was acting, I had no idea he could possibly be the high priest. Because the way he lived out his life speaks to something other than he was the high priest. It's very important that when you stick to truth, You can then speak to issues in the lives of people who maybe you might think have a superior position to you. But if they claim to be a believer and you claim to be a believer, then you have God as the focal point of how you talk through situations. And so here in this case, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I couldn't tell he was a high priest because the guy just hit me for no reason. So maybe you need to talk to him. Could it be that he's in the wrong? 
He said, if I'd have known, I, I wouldn't have done that because I'm not supposed to speak evil of the ruler of your people. In essence, he basically apologizes. He does it in a way that that, that group that's listening could go, hmm, you know what? This guy knows his Bible. He's right. When you point people back to the word, you're going to find that you have a whole lot less to haggle over than, than you would if you try and make it with your own reasoning, your own logic. Paul now is, has been in and out of Jerusalem for some 20 years, so he actually is being truthful here. He probably doesn't know who the high priest is. And apparently, from the way he was dressed, he certainly wasn't in the high priest's garment, or he would have known and wouldn't have said this. So he obviously was dressed in a, a, probably a normal priestly robe, which would have just simply been a white robe. But Paul immediately, even though he's rebuked this man, uh, defers to Scripture and, and just quotes here from Scripture in order to speak. There, that's from Exodus chapter 22. He's not rationalized his own error. He's just simply saying, look, I, the word's clear cut. I shouldn't have done that. But this guy shouldn't have done what he did either. Verse 6, he continues onward. But when Paul perceived that one part of this were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I'm being judged. He says, look, there are some people here who agree with me and some people here who don't agree with me. And I'm being judged with part of you on one side and part of you on the other he, in essence, now kind of deflects the conversation away from himself and towards the others that are in the room. He says, look, you guys can't figure this out for yourself. What are you doing judging me when the two of you disagree with each other? This is a wonderful tactic when you get into conversations with people about things that we're not certain on. Maybe there's a position on one side and a position on the other. When you have a group of people and they're haggling over something like the resurrection of the dead, which was a huge thing to the Pharisees, they believed it. It was also a huge thing to the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Nor did they believe in angels, which is going to come up in a moment, or the Spirit. And so Paul says, look, how can you possibly judge me? I think the same way as these guys... You don't even agree with each other. That way you keep the main thing the main thing, right? Because if you start haggling over things about which people do not agree, you go in circles. Nothing good ever happens. So Paul gets them thinking, hey, you know, well, maybe we should be kind of hashing this out with each other before we go after the, the guy that's before us. He does three things here that are great tactics in dealing with hostile environments. Number one, he opens the door for inserting the gospel of the resurrected Christ. He says, look, I believe in the resurrection. So eventually, we believe in the resurrection, amen? So, so he brings the resurrection up in the, con in, in the context of the conversation. You know, one of the things that we have to deal with as believers is we believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And so if you don't ever put that in your conversation... There's a whole lot of people that believe that Jesus was a historical figure and he lived and probably died and was buried, but he certainly wasn't resurrected. The resurrection of Christ is an essential part of doctrine, as we saw last time. If Jesus isn't raised, then he was not God. He was raised. And so Paul interjects that into this meeting with the council. The next thing that we see is he learns how to get some sympathy from somebody in this conversation. 
you know, if you can find uh, someone who's kind of on your side, then you get an ally. And again, he's not using untruth. He's not pressuring one side to agree with him. He's simply saying, this guy already agrees with me. So why don't you talk to him? Because he believes the same thing I do. And the third thing, he brings up an ongoing controversy that actually keeps them generating kind of hopeless debate. You know, when you're the focal point of something and there's a bigger problem going on, and that thing that you're embroiled in is negative, if you can get people to start talking about the thing that's kind of like the elephant in the room, like the resurrection of the dead, then all of a sudden you kind of don't matter anymore. You'd be surprised how, well, you know, we're not going to deal with the Apostle Paul right now because we've got a bigger fish to fry. And so Paul gives us some help here on how to deal with things that are difficult. We're talking about eternal things. Verse 7, he moves on. The Apostle Paul is, remember, he's in Jerusalem still. He's going to stay there until verse 23. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, exactly what I just shared with you. Now they're going back and forth at each other. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there was no resurrection, and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. So now they're going, you know, how are we going to deal with Paul when we're not on the same page together? He uses the word divided here. It's actually the same Greek word. It's the root word for schism. In other words, they were split. And he'd had a historic resurrection. The Sadducees were actually part of the Jewish group that had tried to trap Jesus without any, or excuse me, the Pharisees uh, tried to trap Jesus. But the Sadducees were those part that believed that the Messianic age had already begun. And so they weren't even looking for Messiah. So as the Pharisees were concerned that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, the Sadducees were not even looking for the Messiah because they believed the Messianic age had already been ushered in at the time of Judas Maccabees. So Judas Maccabees comes on the scene. He fights this incredible guerrilla warfare, in essence, against the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, and for you historical buffs, Antiochus Epiphanes is the one about whom we would uh, have the, the festival of Hanukkah is actually uh, named after Judas Maccabees' restoration of the temple because what happened with Antiochus is he goes into the temple, he desecrates the temple, the temple is actually destroyed because of it, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar, and so when it's restored, the Jewish people say, well, we're already in the Messianic age, and Judas Maccabees brought that about. So the Sadducees are on one side of this argument, the Pharisees are on the other. You kind of have those who are of old school and those who are of the new school, and they're going back and forth. Paul was not just simply causing a distraction, because he could have done that a number of ways. But he wanted to interject this incredible message of the resurrection. Because after all, the thing that he was concerned about was the gospel. It's the thing that we're concerned about. It's why this week is amazing for us as the body of Christ. This is resurrection week. It's, it's a time when people are trying to figure out what this Easter thing's about. Connie and I were driving around yesterday and I'm sitting here, I'm looking at all these Easter baskets and Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and Easter chocolate and Easter candy. It's like other than 
Halloween, it's like the dentist joy, you know. It's, it's like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find Jesus anywhere. Couldn't find resurrection anywhere. Even some churches were having Easter egg hunts and, you know, basically celebrating a pagan holiday in their church. I'm not actually trying to knock an Easter egg hunt. If you want to go have fun with your kids and find colored eggs, praise the Lord. But let's keep Easter what it really means, which is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? And so now there comes this opportunity to talk about that. Verse 9, he says, And then there was a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose protesting said, We find no evil in this man. You see how the Apostle Paul has actually gained some allies, even amongst those who are trying to you know, find fault with him. Said, we don't find any fault with him. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. You see, when you bring the truth up, people have to deal with the truth. When, when you just say, Look, I just believe Jesus Christ was raised from the dead then you either believe that or you don't. And so for those that do, they're all of a sudden on your side. Those that don't, they're, they're just absolutely incensed. The Sadducees are just arguing against that very point because they, didn't believe, they did not believe in the existence of angels or spirits. Verse 10, they go on. And now when there arose that great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, so he's in the middle now, not of his own trial, but the argument between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You have one group, we're going to kill this guy. The other group, we've got to let him go because he believes what we believe. The commanders of the soldiers were to take him and go down and take him by force from among them and bring him to the barracks. And so Paul's literally going to be set free in that sense because he stood on the word of God. He just told him what God's word says. He says, look, I'm going to stand on it. I believe Christ was raised from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. So while you guys are fighting about that, they're going to take me and put me in protective custody. So he uses the word to be set free. And so there's some long-term results that you can look for. There's four ways to kind of work through these things in these first ten verses. Number one, we want to live wisely as a citizen of heaven. We want to address wrongs when we see them from a biblical perspective. You want to submit to the word of God when you hear it. And you want to tell your side of the story when the opportunity presents itself. And so the apostle now uh, is in protective custody, and we pick the story up in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, When you stand for God, God stands with you. When, when you believe in what the Lord has told you, and you stand on the word, God's got your back. If you make up your own story... You go your own direction, you tell people what you think they want to hear, and you make truth up, in essence, then you're going to be standing alone. But if you stand on God's word, God will be with you. And God said to him, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. He says, look, you, you just earned a trip to Rome, in essence, by your witness. 
And Apostle Paul, of course, was concerned with taking the gospel to Rome. And so the Lord now appears to him. Literally, it says here that he stood by him. That's actually a literal rendering there. And whether Paul visibly saw the Lord or whether he saw uh, some type of a, of a vision, we're, we're not exactly sure. But the context here is, is that Paul had a conversation with God. Just as you've told people, basically I'm paraphrasing about me, Paul, I'm going to tell people about you. I'm going to make sure that you get where you need to go. I'm going to make sure you get to take the good news to Rome. And you might imagine after a visit like this and this type of an altercation that Paul would be discouraged. But it doesn't seem that he's discouraged. It seems that he's encouraged because he's seen the hand of the Lord deliver him from an untenable situation. And so it is in our lives when God moves in and takes control of a situation that is out of control, we learn to lean all the harder on the Lord. And, and so know that just because something seems like it can't happen, if you'll trust God, then God will do what he needs to do to deliver you. God had pledged to be Paul's deliverer and get him to Rome. So he is in God's hands. So everything that follows... Everything that follows. The Apostle Paul can say, look, I've already watched God deliver me. I've already watched him get me out of a situation there was no way out of. And again, remind yourself of the situation. You have the Romans on the outside of this hall of hewn stones, this long colonnaded building. You, you have 71 or two people there that their sole job is to, is to deal with you according to the Hebrew laws. So you have the Romans on the outside, the Jews on the inside, and God somehow uses the Romans to deliver him from the Jewish people to deliver him yet further to Rome. God had it under control the whole time, even though it looked like it was out of control. We pick up the story in verse 12, and then when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. That's how crazy it got. Because God had delivered him out of that situation. And it appears as though they kind of understood, look, we got to take this guy out because he is winning. We cannot allow this to happen. And now there are more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. That's a large group of people. The, the total number of people involved in planning and carrying out the attacks of 9-11 was 23. So imagine what 40 people can pull together. Even though it's a different time and they don't have jets to fly them into the World Trade Center, 40 people can put a lot of brain power on a single person. They can figure out a lot of ways to get to you. And so the Apostle Paul has reason to be a little bit concerned here. But it appears as though he's not. Because the Lord had physically come to him and said, look, I got this. You're going to Rome. All the meanwhile, these zealous Jews are concocting a plan. And they take a solemn vow. This is basically like a curse upon themselves if they don't fulfill it. And so they're, they're I'm almost wondering what Luke was thinking as he wrote these words down. Because he's already, no, Paul, Paul knows and Luke knows, because he's writing this down, that Paul's going to Rome. 
And now you've got 40 people wasting their time trying to kill him. And it would actually be about 10 years before Paul would actually die. So they weren't successful in carrying out their plan because God had spoken, I've got you, Paul. Don't worry about it. You just live your life for me. And this is after two days of riots and mayhem. So it's kind of a chaotic situation. Maybe Paul was discouraged. We don't know. But the bottom line is he's here in that dark dungeon. It's places that some of us go sometimes. Sometimes you're in that situation. Maybe you're in a dungeon. Maybe you're in a hospital room. Maybe you're visiting a cemetery. Maybe you're in the kitchen just doing something that seems like oh, this is the 800th time they've done this and I don't even know if anybody even cares. It's at those times that you see the hand of God oftentimes the most and the most powerful. You've got to be listening for his voice though and you have to lean on his promises. Verse 14 as he continues, And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. And now you therefore gather together with the council and suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready nearby to kill him before he comes near. These guys are, they're trying to use every tactic they can possibly think of. They go right back to the people who've already been unsuccessful and say, look, why don't you bring him here and we'll re-question him after two days of chaos. And before he even gets here, we'll kill him. And so the plan was to have the high council basically join in in their plot. And, and, And you might think of it this way, you know, can you imagine if you had... You know, the, the, the mayor of, maybe Mayor Garcetti is all of a sudden not really fond of you. And he gathers together with a group of people from inside of City Hall and gets a few people from the state, and maybe a few people from the feds and the IRS and everybody else. And they're like, you know, that's a, that's a reason you could be kind of concerned. That's what the Apostle Paul was facing. This is power at the highest level, and they're after him. And yet he's like, I'm in God's hands. Fanaticism cannot overcome God's plans. I get asked sometimes, you know, doesn't it bother you to travel to, you know, dangerous places? And while I will always say I I don't test the Lord, you know, I, I don't walk places I probably shouldn't walk, and I don't do things that I shouldn't do, I pretty much believe that if it's not my time to go, it's not my time to go. It's been appointed by God when that is, and I trust him with it. So I, I don't fly around with a bunch of fear thinking the plane's going to, you know, make a spot in the middle of desert somewhere or, you know, land in the ocean. I typically enjoy the journey wherever I'm going because I figure if God doesn't have me when I'm here on the freeway, he surely doesn't have me in the air. If he doesn't have me here, you know, what difference does it make? Because I, I, I'm risking death every time I get on the 110. Amen? Yeah. You've you got to think through these things sometimes and, and put it in the, the realm of reality. I mean, sometimes I think back of what I've done to my body and what my arteries should look like. And I'm going, if I haven't died of a heart attack already, 
then I'm, I'm probably not going home anytime soon. I think sometimes we worry about things that not only aren't fruitful, but they kind of keep us from being used of the Lord in a lot of ways. We kind of tie our own hands. And we help the enemy out a little bit. It's like, well, you know, I'm just going to let fear rule my life. The Apostle Paul did not let fear govern his life. Notice verse 16 as we get there now. Verses 16 and 17. Now, many of you probably know if you're a student of Scripture... Now, there's lots of rumors about the Apostle Paul, but there are very little facts about the Apostle Paul's life. Here is the one and only relative of the Apostle Paul mentioned in all of Scripture, mentioned here, mentioned once in one circumstance, and never seen again. And so when Paul's sister's son, so Paul's nephew, Paul's nephew heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, So somehow, the Apostle Paul's family uh, is still in Jerusalem. And they obviously know what's going on with the Apostle Paul. So at least we know this. The Apostle Paul did have family. That family was still in Jerusalem at at this time in his life. Now he's uh, likely in the neighborhood of 50-something years old. Uh, He will not die until he's a little over 60, about my age. Uh, And so then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So the only reference to Paul's family is here. And, and, And I want you to see something here. And this is a perfect example of what I just explained to you in my own life. Paul uses the absolute correct balance between trusting God's sovereign plan and taking proper action in prudence, knowledge, and wisdom. Okay, He knows God's got it. But he also knows that this is a situation that, for some reason, God has made him aware. And please hear what I'm saying here. God has made the Apostle Paul aware of a situation. So Paul isn't going to just sit there and go, well, I'm just trusting God. He's not going to sit and do nothing. He's going to do what's right, given what he knows about God's character and nature. And so he's not just simply... You know, throwing his hands up in the air and and screaming, faith, faith, faith. He's got faith that works. And so he takes action based on what he knows that's in alignment with God's will. And this is a wonderful example for us. There are times when you don't know specifically all the steps that God wants you to take, but you do know a couple of the pieces And in this case, one of the pieces is do the right thing with what you do know, which is you now know there's a plot against your life, so tell someone about it. So that perhaps they can be used of the Lord to alleviate that situation. Too often you have one of two extremes. People try and do God's will by themselves without God. And you have people who just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, if God's got it, I'm not going to do anything. Neither extreme is how God's called us to live our lives because he left us with minds. He's emphasized that the beginning of wisdom is, is the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we're, we're to exercise wisdom. We're to exercise prudence. We're to ask for knowledge. We're to ask for understanding, all of those things. And so now he uses it. And so in this case, a young man is used. And 
It's another picture of why I think Jesus there in Matthew 18 took a child, put it in the midst of the disciples and says, lest you become as one of these, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. Kids can be trusted very often to do things that just require a step of faith a lot easier than us adults at times. You know, because they're just, okay, God says so, I'm in. We adults kind of go too far usually on the logic and reason side, and sometimes kids go too far on the zeal side, so it's good to have both in view. Verse 18, And he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring you this young man uh, to bring him to you, and he has something to say to you. And when the commander took him by the hand and went aside, he asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And so here comes Paul's nephew, the deliverer of the of the message and and it appears to be fairly gentle in the way this is is spoken of in the original language and and so there's some kindness in view in other words the the romans aren't actually all that hostile towards paul's situation and because he is a roman citizen there's kind of an advocate there and so the young man begins to speak in verse 20 and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though you were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. And the commander let the young man depart and commanded, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. And so Paul's nephew exposes the plot and what happens next, though it appears to be yet another step in the wrong direction, is actually a huge step in the right direction. As we begin to now see, Paul is going to spend two years in prison in in a town called Caesarea Philippi, or excuse me, Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the coast. Uh, They're on on the coast of the of the Mediterranean Sea. And so Paul will be uh, sent there uh, as part of the way that God's going to protect him. And in the meantime, he's going to have an opportunity like nobody's business to preach the gospel. And he's actually going to be used for almost two years to, to speak forth those truths in the lives of people who are coming to the only deep water port that existed on the Mediterranean coast in that area of the world. And and so we pick up in verse 23, and then he called for two centurions. So the word's gone out, the plan's been exposed. This commander calls for two centurions, that's captains of hundreds. Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And so you, you, you kind of ask yourself, man, is the gospel that dangerous that it takes 470 men to escort Paul? At that point in time, the Romans were concerned about the Jewish people uh, getting stirred up into an uproar. And so the apostle Paul was actually a danger to the Romans and he was a danger to the Jews, he was a danger to everybody because he had the gospel. And, and so as he speaks forth that gospel, it's kind of like everybody is like, man, where is this going to go? And so they become zealous on Paul's behalf. Now to put this into perspective, 
God works in very unexpected ways very often in our lives. And so Paul is in Jerusalem, about 60 miles to the north and to the west of Caesarea Maritima. Uh, It's on the coast. It it is actually our first stop when we uh, travel to Israel. We'll normally land at Ben-Gurion Airport. Uh, We'll spend the first night usually in Netanya or Herzliza. And and then we'll drive up the coast to Caesarea. And Caesarea is one of those amazing spots uh, that when you travel there, you get to see history alive. And so we're going to be looking these next several chapters of the Apostle Paul's time spent in Caesarea. Uh, It began to be first excavated. It was actually buried underneath sand dunes, completely invisible from above until about 1950. From 1950 to 1961, uh, it was heavily excavated uh, by the Israeli Antiquities Department. And so it has now been largely restored in in a number of places. And when you travel there, you are literally stepping back into history. This is the port city uh, constructed by Herod the Great. When Herod the Great uh, built this palatial uh, estate and palace that was directly on the coast, uh, he also erected a 5,000-seat theater, and it is, that's actually the entrance to the theater. Those stones were placed in exactly uh, the period of time that the Apostle Paul is talking about as we're reading the book of Acts. And so that archway and those that are in that level would have been the archways that possibly Paul was brought through as he would then uh, plead his case, which will happen over the next several uh, chapters as we study the, the latter chapters here of the book of Acts. And so as you enter into this theater, it actually holds about 5,000 people. Uh, today, when you travel into this theater, the stage, which is down Uh, Below, you can kind of see some seats in the foreground there. Just beyond that is the original stone stage, the original limestone from the time of Paul, many of the seats that are still in the amphitheater from the time of Paul. uh, Many of them have been replaced. They still use it for an outdoor seating venue. It's by the sea. It's an absolutely beautiful location for concerts, those types of things. But Paul is going to be taken here. And as he's taken here, one of the things that exists here is is Herod's palace and Herod's uh, hippodrome, which is where they would have chariot races. Uh, and so the Apostle Paul uh, is, is going to be taken to this port city. It's Herod's swimming pool. Uh, they're actually out in the Mediterranean Sea. Most of the palace is out after that point. It's still underwater to this day. Uh, you may have read just oh, three or four months ago Uh, There was a Roman barge that was found off the coast of this very site, uh, some $240 million worth of gold coins in it. They're still digging up all kinds of things from the Roman period. Uh, But as as you think about the Apostle Paul, there was a real place. We now have it identified. We know where he went. Uh, We even know the stockade. Uh, This happens to be the stockade, the location of the Roman soldiers uh, that would have been taking the Apostle Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima would have stayed in these areas. The stables are directly behind that wall. Uh, They could have brought the horses out into the Hippodrome, which is in the foreground of that shot. Uh, That's where they would have brought them out onto the chariot raceways. And then the wonderful thing is they're actually excavating this even now in the background, all that Uh, scaffolding that you see in that photograph, which you don't see is that grass area actually used to be the Mediterranean Sea. And so they dug a deep water port uh, over in the foreground uh, off to what is your left-hand side in the corner. 
that was actually a set of steps. It leads from the dock. And so when Paul would leave and go to Rome, he almost assuredly left from that very spot. And that is the prison that the Apostle Paul would spend almost two years in. The reason that we know that this was the place is because they found massive quantities of coins, all kinds of carvings. And one of the things that is most wonderful about it is we all have a character that's coming into view this week. His name is Pontius Pilate. Amen? He's the Roman governor of the province of Judea. Uh, He is the one that's ultimately responsible, though he wants to let Jesus go. Uh, He was believed to be a myth until 1961. In 1961, uh, a stone was found uh, about two and a half uh, feet in diameter and about four feet tall. And on the side of it, it said Pontius Pilatus, the prefect of Judea. And it's been dated to exactly the time that Jesus was crucified. And so uh, we even know that this is where Pontius Pilate also came into power. He was then transferred down to Jerusalem uh, where he would be the governor for the Romans. And so loads of history in this area and all of it speaks to the validity of the story that we have here in the book of Acts. And so a lot of those pieces will come into view. So when someone says, well, how do we know? Well, we know because inside of those jail cells are all kinds of prisoners' carvings, and those prisoners' carvings have all kinds of Jewish names in there, and they are now looking at one wall section uh, that they believe very specifically may have actually been the actual cell that the Apostle Paul was in. And so they found all kinds of history, and they're actually, as we speak, uh, trying to translate most of the things that are in there into into active information that we could say, yeah, that verifies even some further details. So Paul was imprisoned there for about two years from Acts 23 to Acts 26. And it's there that he's going to give this great oration. I believe that uh, some of that at least took place in the theater. And so Paul's going to go into that theater. The people will be seated. The Romans will be listening and, and he will be speaking to those people uh, about why he believes what he believes about this Jesus who is the Christ. Verse 25, uh, he goes on now, and so a letter is sent with the Apostle Paul. And so three things that we'll conclude with here in a moment. Verse 25, and says, He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, uh, his name also found uh, in the excavations of Caesarea Philippi, along with the most excellent governor, Felix, his name also found within a set of scrolls found at Caesarea Maritima. And he writes this letter. He says, look, this is to Claudius Lysias, his excellency, and to governor Felix. Felix was the guy who took over after Pontius Pilate and so held the same position. Jews had been given all kinds of freedom, basically, to govern themselves. But the governor ran the army, kept the peace, gathered the taxes. So you kind of had religious existence, and then you had a civil existence all at the same time. Very much like we have, guaranteed by our Constitution in this nation, the separation of church and state. In other words, the state kind of took care of the roads and the highways and the aqueducts 
making sure that there was no violence. Uh, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace was kept, and then everyone was pretty much free to worship however they desired to worship. And so the Jews had a lot of freedom, though it was not complete, but it was substantial underneath the, the Roman religious or the Roman rulership. Verse 27, and this man was seized by the Jews. Uh, he says, here's the content of the letter that's addressed uh, through Claudius Lysias to the governor Felix. This man was seized by the Jews and about to be killed by them. Uh, coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned he was a Roman. So he's now basically saying, look, I want you to put him in protective custody. And when I wanted to know the reason that they accused him, I, I brought him before their council and found out that he was accused concerning questions about their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving death or chains. And it was told to me that the Jews laid in wait for the man. I sent him immediately to you and also commanded that his accusers uh, state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Very standard uh, Roman, very standard Latin uh, transcript of, of those particular events. In verse 31 it says, And then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Antipatris is about halfway between Caesarea uh, and, and Jerusalem. It's actually about 35 miles of the 60 miles in total. And so they stop there for the night. But because Paul is, is now moving in a, uh, in a caravan, in essence, of horses, He's able to move much quicker than somebody could have traveled on foot. And so he is well out of their reach and by, the, by the next evening. Uh, that distance and speed, uh, he's basically safe from all pursuers at this point in time. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor read it, he asked what province is he from. And when he understood that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And so those cells are Herod's praetorium. And so the apostle Paul uh, was, was kept there. And it's interesting that Felix had, he's kind of an interesting character, and he was a fairly vile guy, basically. Uh, it was said of him by Tacticus, the Roman historian, that he ruled with the power of a king, but he had the mind of a slave. So he was not a very popular guy. He had a tendency to kind of wield his political power. He married into power. Uh, he actually married the sister of Herod Agrippa II, um, who we'll see in chapter 24, uh, who was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. And so this is a well-woven tale of great historical importance. And so the platform is now set for the Apostle Paul to speak to these leading rulers. Uh, the area which he's going to be speaking in is the area that we'll see in the next three chapters as we draw near the close of the book of Acts. And as Paul will go to Rome, he's going to go from that deep water port uh, that you were just looking at. He'll, he'll board a, a Roman galley, uh, which would then take out through the little channel. There's actually a, a long causeway uh, that heads out past Herod's uh, palace there. Uh, and so from this chapter tonight, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. From this chapter tonight, there's some guarantees in essence if you want to see the glory of God at work in your life. Number one, you've got to have the Lord's presence. Okay, if you don't have the Lord's presence in your life by the power of the Spirit, uh, it's pretty tough to have the glory of God in your life. The second thing 
If you have that, you will have God's protection. Even if it seems at times like that has brought you into places that mm, maybe you'd rather not be. God's still got it. He still has those things under control. And then the final thing is that you'll be given God's platforms. And this is actually the, the, the remainder of this chapter, the, the final bit of it, and then actually the next several chapters are God giving the Apostle Paul a platform with which the gospel can go out. Because you might imagine uh, how important it would be if you had all of the ships from the ruling power of, of the world at that time, which was Rome, and, and they come into this port because this is where King Herod... Uh, the king, in essence, self-announced king of Judea is headquartered. And those Roman ships come in. And every time one comes in, you've got some guy who's imprisoned, who's speaking the truth of the gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen, including the, the criminals inside the jail cells, the jailers, the army, the governor, the prefect, all of the people. The Apostle Paul's sharing that truth with them. He's not stopping for two years that's going out of that port virtually every ship has a little seed of the gospel on it so whether they went down to alexandria in north africa and what we would call where the bombing happened today more christians killed in a in a coptic church in egypt i think it was 35 38 people blown up in a in a worship service but there in alexandria was the largest library in the entire world and so ships would travel from the port in Caesarea to, to Alexandria. Ships would travel uh, up the coast along into Greece, over to Rome, uh, through, the, through the Aegean Sea. And so Paul was strategically placed, even though it was by force, he was strategically placed in the one place in the entire region where he could have the greatest impact. And then he would be moved from there, literally to the capital of the most powerful nation on earth. And so God knew exactly what he was doing, and God gave Paul those platforms. Uh, it, it shouldn't surprise us that, that Paul could write there in Romans eight thirty one, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen? So God had it under control. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to bring some of the pastors down front. We're going to close with one song. Pastors will be available for prayer. So look for God's presence in your life. Look for God's protection in your life. Look for God's platforms in your life. Because he's always at work. You may not see him every day uh, in the way that the Apostle Paul saw him here. But you can be assured he is moving, he is working, and he does have a perfect plan. And he won't ever let you down. Amen.